Listener Production. This is From Zero, conversations with business founders. I'm Adam Schwab, co-founder of LuxuryEscapes.com, financial journalist, author, and angel investor. With my best mate from school, we co-founded Luxury Escapes, and the business has grown to turn over almost a billion dollars annually. In this episode, you ask me the questions in what we call Ask Adam Anything. If you're a budding entrepreneur, established founder, or business professional, and want to ask us a question, please send a voice recording to info at fromzeropodcast.com, and we'd love to get you on the show. Now, on to our first question. Hi, Adam. It's Janet from Janjuk, a long-time listener, first-time caller. Um, my question is, as a general rule of thumb, they say not to go into business with a friend. Uh, can you tell me why your partnership with Jeremy Same has been so successful? Thank you, Janet from Janjak. What a lovely part of the world. So lucky to live. Uh, I imagine, I reckon Janet sounds like a surfer. Do you reckon, Angie, you reckon she gets in, into the waves? I mean, it'd be hard not to be a surfer. If you yeah, I reckon there. she is. I reckon she, she loves it. Um, so thank you, Janet. That's a great question and great research. Obviously, Jeremy uh, is my original business partner. So I love a listener who, who listens to the show and does does their research. So thank you, Janet, for your lovely question. Uh, and a really good question uh, and for a couple of reasons. So if you look at the history of, of startups, there is absolutely a bias to startups that have the most success are generally with two or maybe three co-founders. Generally, sole founders tend to not do as well. Uh there's probably some obvious reasons for that uh, and some probably less obvious reasons. The obvious reason is uh, one person just got less talent, less skill, less money. So it's generally just harder if you're by yourself. If you, The beauty of, 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 of having a co-founder or founders is A, your equity is spread amongst multiple people. So you've got other people to, to help fund the business. So you're less likely to get outside equity investors. And there's real sweat equity there. Uh, so the, the, the best situation is if you can find a, find a, a, a co-founder who has complementary skills. So often you'll find you'll see an operational founder and a technical founder, or potentially potentially a technical founder and a sales founder. Probably less benefit having two technical co-founders uh, or two sales co-founders is even less benefit again. So if you can manage a sales and operations, something in a tech, so it's really a great combination. If you look at Jeremy and myself, neither of us are technology sort of driven at all. Jez probably has always had a a slightly better understanding of technology than me. Not that he's a coder or anything like that, but he's always sort of been good at, at picking trends. Uh, whereas I was historically a bit more operational. So our skills are always really complementary in that sense. And even in our early days, so our, our first business was a apartments business. So we used to literally put together furniture for these apartments back when we were 24, 25. And, and I wasn't amazing at furniture putting together, but I was okay, but Jez was not that good at all. So I would do the furniture, Jez would do the sort of deliveries and handle all that stuff. And we just had this really good uh, synergy going, whereas we just knew what we were good at. And we, as long as you both put in equal amounts of work, that's the real challenge is you, what, 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 when partnerships break down is when somebody does lots and lots of work and somebody doesn't. Uh, and ultimately you've also got to be understanding of what strengths and skills the other person brings. So as our business grew uh, and Jez wasn't super operational, it didn't make any sense for him to stay operational in the business. So I kept on doing the operational stuff and Jez moved on to more strategic stuff, uh, more board level stuff. And that then sort of does a lot of his own stuff on the side, but we still certainly talk for all key decisions. 
we always want to align ourselves together on. So it's very rare. One of us was very around make a decision that's a major decision in the business, whether it's a key hire, certainly a key acquisition, uh, anything like that, a, a key change in, in focus without running it past eventually my co-founder. And obviously now I've got a board and other shareholders who, who, who uh, need buy-in in those decisions. But I think part, it's partly who you choose as a co-founder is really important. So you need to as I said, choose someone whose skills complement yours, but that's sort of only caught 20, 25%. It's a bit like choosing a life partner. A lot of it is how you then operate together as a team and being understanding where not everybody needs to contribute equally in terms of inputs and outputs. What you want is to a, a fair split and people doing what they're good at doing. So I think we've always, both Jeremy and myself have always been very understanding at each other's strengths and weaknesses. So uh, Jez won't tend to interfere in operational stuff and, and that's great for me and, and it's also great for him because he doesn't want to. So ideally you want to try and be good at different things and be really understanding of the other person. Uh, and, and having a, a good co-founder is often the difference between making and breaking a business. Like it's all good and well talking about it, but you need to find a partner who can help the business survive. Otherwise, you're giving up half the equity for no reason. So I think there's lots of stuff that goes into a, a co-founder relationship. It's probably the most, it is the most important relationship in a business sense. In many cases, the most important relationship will have full stop, even including uh, life partners, because you probably spend more time at work than you, you do awake at home. So it's a super critical decision, even for a short period of your life. And it's really important you get it right. And what I always say, don't, rush into it with the wrong partner, make sure you pick the right co-founder, the right partner, because it's a really important decision. It's really hard to untangle. And then when you've done that, make sure you get your shareholders agreement or whatever agreement, your partnership agreement, really appropriate and applicable. And I'd always say, try and get a lawyer to sort that stuff out because ultimately if things do go wrong down the track, you don't want a messy separation. You want to have a shareholders agreement that really specifies who gets what, what happens if someone leaves. So it's really important to get the, do the work up front before there's real value. Because if you're arguing over hundreds of tens of billions of dollars or whatever it is, much harder if you don't have guardrails to, to work within. So pick the right founder, pick a founder who's complimentary and make sure you get your shareholders agreement, partnership agreement done before you start the business. It solves a lot of problems down the track. Kia ora, Adam. Love the show. Tom here from Tekofota Aotearoa. Um, I've just come into a bit of money, about $20,000, and I'm wondering what I should do to invest it. I'm financially stable otherwise, um, so I'm looking to invest this and would love your advice. Thank you. Love the show. Thank you, Tom, from... Where was he from, Ed? I, I did not understand that. So he was from... I will have trouble pronouncing it myself, but it's Aotearoa. Which is this in South America or which is New Zealand? New Zealand. Oh, okay. Which is the, Apologies. The Maori pronunciation. Fantastic. New Zealand. I love our New Zealand friends. I was in New Zealand two months ago. I think I was skiing at Cardrona for seven days. Incredible, must incredible be, snow there. Must be very nice. It was very nice. It was spring skiing, so it wasn't all the powder, but it was. They do unbelievable terrain park. I know before you broke your wrist, Ed, did you go on the terrain parks much? No, I'm not a huge skier. I broke my wrist doing a lot more, lot less adventurous things, just riding my bike through Melbourne. I but. thought it was doing a, a heli, a, a flip out of a heli. Gee, if I there did a flip out of a heli and just broke my wrist, I'd be stoked with that. Good result. And just before we, I answer that question, just to remind all listeners, this is not financial advice. This is not a financial advice show. I'm not giving you financial advice. Please take this as a general uh, views of myself. Uh, hopefully I'm right, but don't, please don't invest on, on the basis of these comments. I don't want to be responsible for you losing your house. So Tom, thanks for the question and, and congratulations on the, on your windfall, 20 grand. So that's, I don't know if it's a little lottery win or, or inheritance. And, and it's, 20 grand is an interesting amount because it's not enough to 
be able to invest in probably a startup or a business because he generally, so generally what in Australia we have what's called sophisticated investor rules and it's, it's probably a bit of an archaic rule, but what that basically means is it really should be called a rich investor rule because it says if you've got effectively 250 grand plus to invest, uh, you, you're open to a whole lot of what's called wholesale investment. So you can invest in venture capital funds, you can invest in a bunch of startups. It's, it's, a, it's a much more, um, it's really unfair in many ways because it excludes a lot of people from that because that's, that's quite a lot of money. But if you are a sophisticated investor or deemed a sophisticated investor, you can invest in lots and lots of different stuff. If you're not, it does make it harder. So ultimately, there's a couple of different categories. One, you can just put in the bank. Uh, problem with putting in the bank is we've got something called inflation. So inflation's running at 8%, interest is running at 3%, you're losing 5% of your money a year. That's not a great result. If you're left in there forever, your 20 grand goes to almost zero. So at the moment, banks aren't great. In periods of low inflation, banks are fine. Uh, same token bonds. So you've probably heard of uh, corporate bo- government bonds or corporate bonds. Forget about corporate bonds for now because that's the a sophisticated type thing. But you can buy government bonds. Uh, thing about government bonds is government bonds have what's called an inverse yield relationship. So you get a, a yield. So government bonds could be yielding 3%, 2.5% on the basis of them being very safe. In the, you're backed by the money printing power of the Australian government or whichever government you're investing in. Uh, problem with bonds are if interest rates go up um, so you get a higher yield, the bonds, the price of the bond goes down. So in periods of interest rates going up is really bad for bondholders. So what you tend to not do is, and that's why we've got, we've got it's actually called an inverse yield curve at the moment, but without going into huge detail there, bonds are a tough investment in inflationary periods because the interest, interest rates are going up and it's eating away at the value of your bond. So let's for now put a question mark against uh, cash, a probably a cross against bonds. The next step is is the share market. So of course the, the public share market, which is in Australia is called the ASX. The good thing about ASX is you get exposure to a huge number of different companies. You can choose the company you want. You can invest as little as probably a hundred bucks. There's not much brokerage these days. So you don't tend to pay a huge amount of fees. Uh, so in, in certain times, ASX is a great investment. Uh, there's, a, there's a great myth that the, the market always goes up. The problem is we had Scott Phillips on the show a little while ago. The market often goes up, but definitely doesn't always go up. If you, if you bought shares in Japan in 1989, even now, 33, 33 years later, you'd be down, I think, 40% still. So I think if you invested in, in 1930, to get your money back would have been about 30 years. If you invested in 1966, uh, 16 years later, in 1982, the market hadn't increased at all and inflation had eaten away about 90% of your investment. So the market absolutely doesn't always go up. So you don't I always tell um, sort of friends and family who ask, don't buy shares when the markets are record highs because chances are it's going to drop. So what we've had in the Australian market recently is the market has dropped a bit, uh, probably about 10% off highs. That said, we're not that much higher than we were back in 2008. So if you look at 2008, we're about 6,600. Now it's about 7,200. It's oscillated a bit. Overall, I think there's pockets of value in the Australian share market. Again, this is an investing advi- investment advice show, uh, but there certainly are some businesses that I think are probably fairly valued. The market certainly has softened a bit, and compared to the US, we didn't grow anywhere near as much as the US post-global financial crisis. So uh, when I'm looking at shares, I'm looking at companies that have great franchises, great what's called economic moats, uh, and great return on equity. Uh, and I certainly don't like paying a lot for shares. When I say paying a lot, forget the share price. What I like doing is paying a high multiple, so a high earnings multiple. So I love Netflix as a business. I actually love Tesla as a business. They historically have had really high multiples. So that means they're expensive. So even though I love the business, I didn't buy the shares in the last sort of five or six years because they just were very expensive. I think the market now is actually not a bad place to invest. So you can either invest in individual shares, which it takes a bit of skill and a bit of luck. 
Uh, or you can invest in what's called the index. And you can do that via a number of ways, but ETFs, so exchange-traded funds, is probably the cheapest and best way. Or you can just buy an index fund. My advice to most people is that's the best way to invest in the market because you get a broad spectrum of a couple of hundred or even 500 shares and you're, you're going to get some winners, you're going to get some losers, but generally you'll track what's called the index, which is the S&P, uh, I think it's the S&P 200 in Australia or, or the All Ordinary. So you tend to follow the index and that's generally the best way. So Warren Buffett, probably the great one of the greatest investments of all time, investors of all time, generally tells people the same thing, buy an index fund, don't try and pick the market. It's for a number of reasons. One, it's really hard. Two, you, you lose a, mon- a lot of money trading in and out. And three, you just generally can't can't get it right. It's just actually very hard. So especially when you've got sort of 20K, you don't really have time to spend hours and hours researching specific companies. You probably don't have the same skill and knowledge of someone who's done this the whole life. Buying an index fund is, is a really smart way to go about it. And because the market is slightly off its highs, it's definitely not the worst time to buy, nor is it the best time. Again, going back to Warren Buffett, he basically says, be greedy when other, people's are, other people are fearful and be fearful when other people are greedy. So six months ago when the market was at record level levels, every asset was at record levels, that's when you need to be fearful. Of course, everybody was greedy. Now the market's come off a bit. People are still a bit fearful. Now's the time to almost start getting greedy. So ultimately, you received your money now. You don't really have choice in that. But now is not a terrible time to buy. But my view, I'm, I'm what's called a perma bear. So I'm always a bit negative on markets and I have been for a number of years. I'm still relatively negative on the market. I think inflation, I think it will go down. I think it's gone down yet. I don't think the impact of interest rates has happened yet. So I'm not an aggressive, I wouldn't be an aggressive buyer of the market now, but nor is it the worst time. So uh, then after the market, you can look at more alternative form of investment. So startups is one. Again, with 20 grand, really hard. If you say, Adam, I've got 500 grand, what I'd certainly say is look for some startups that you can invest in early stage, be it Series A, even Seed, and you can put as low as $20,000 in, in these type of businesses. That can give you a huge upside. You probably want to invest in 10 to 20 of them because you invest in one or two startups, you don't have enough diversification, you don't have enough, um, you don't have enough uh, eggs in the, in the basket, so to speak. Then you can invest in other stuff like crypto, NFT. My advice is don't, especially if you've got 20 grand. They've come off a lot now, so Glamour's really washed off. Six months ago, everybody was said, yeah, buy some uh, board Ape NFTs. My view is that, as we talked about recently on the show, there's very little value there. There's a real chance it goes to zero. There is a chance it goes to 100 grand, but but there's a bigger chance it goes to zero. With 20 grand to play with, that certainly wouldn't be what I've done. What, I, what I'd do, if you've got a million dollars, putting 50 grand in those sort of alternative investments, fine. You may be a loser, but it's not going to impact your, your overall portfolio much. So, I sort of wouldn't be thinking about those super risky stuff. Ventures are a little bit difficult. You've also got gold, called hard assets, gold and other commodities. I think gold is gold is often criticised because it doesn't yield anything. It's a piece of metal that sits in a in a vault, and you've got to insure. So it's a kind of an, almost a negative yield asset. But gold has essentially been money for thousands of years. So the re, gold generally tracks money. So if you invested in gold in 1925, it's worth in terms of what you can buy with that gold, very similar to what it is to, to now. So gold tends to hold its value despite many governments over the years hating gold because it, it uh, makes governing more difficult. So I think gold is actually a really good investment uh, over the long term for a part of your portfolio as well. So generally what, what you do, if you've got 20 grand to invest and there isn't a huge amount in terms of you start getting eaten away by transaction fees, but I'd put a chunk in, uh, if it was me, I'd put a chunk in an index fund or an ETF, so you're tracking the markets of court a third in an ETF, a third in cash, and maybe a third gold or, or maybe a bit less gold and a bit more cash. So that's sort of how I'd look at it. 
obviously, this is an investment advice show, so uh, don't take this anything as advice, but that's how I look at investing. If you have a bit more money, startups are a great way to diversify and grow your wealth in a really nicely risk-adjusted way. Uh, I'd steer clear of individual stocks and certainly steer clear of anything that's sort of super buzzy from NFTs to, Bit- to Bitcoin to anything like that until you've got a lot more money and just be willing to lose it. And same with things like artwork, boats, planes, anything like that. You need to be willing to lose it. Some people make money off that sort of stuff, but it's it's the exception, not the rule. So be diversified, be safe, be smart. Uh, you're much better off maintaining your capital than trying to 10X it because realistically, the chances of 10Xing are pretty low. I, I wouldn't be focusing on, on growing ridiculously. That can be when you get your million, two million bucks. But when you've got 20 grand, just try and turn that 20 grand into 40 grand in 10 years' time. That, that'd be a job well done. So you mentioned the 500 grand that you would, as an example for when you can maybe start investing in, in startups in seed rounds or series A, is that the minimum? You think if, if you're looking at like 100 grand, 150 grand, are there avenues to be able to invest in startups? And, and if there was somebody out there who had found that 100 to 150 grand, how does that actually happen? Who do you contact? How do you, or is it just industry connections, kind of who you know? Yeah, it's a really good question. And there's really a couple of ways to invest in, call it early stage. You either go through a fund or you invest directly. So we talked a bit bit before about being a sophisticated investor. And in most cases, you'd need to be. So most venture capital funds or any kind of fund that's wholesale will require you to be deemed sophisticated. And what that is, is income of $250,000 a year or more, or or 2.5 million in net assets. So most people don't have Either of those things. So it makes it a lot harder. Let's, let's just say for argument's sake, we, we qualify in this case. So we're sophisticated. You can either invest in a venture capital fund of which there are probably, there's four or five big ones in Australia, probably another 30 small ones. So you've probably heard of Blackbird, Airtree, Squarepeg. They're the really big ones. Uh, they generally get money from super funds or sometimes very rich people. Uh, they generally would want checks in the millions of dollars. There are lots of mid-tier, excellent venture capital funds uh, my friend Paul Naftali runs Rampersand, which is an incredible fund. Uh, there's the Aura guys up in Sydney and Singapore run a fantastic fund, which I'm a venture, a venture partner with. Uh, there's the uh, Right Click Capital guys who run a fantastic fund out of Sydney. There's a lot of these sort of funds that tend to be sort of $50 million to $100 million funds. Our innovation fund guys out of Sydney as well are excellent. Uh, these funds will generally accept checks of 250k plus, uh, sometimes less, but, but rarely. Usually 250k is sort of the minimum spend on those, those sort of funds. They're, they're great investments. The, the upside is these these funds see thousands of companies a year and they get great patent re- recognition so they can see what's doing well. They can then follow on their good investments. And investment and VC funds in Australia tend to sort of give a return of almost 20% or upwards of 20% money on money return, when, even after fees. So VCs have done very well over the last sort of call it 10 to 15 years in Australia. Uh, it has been a gold one. This could change because past investment returns absolutely no indication of future, but historically VCs have a great advantage. They see lots of businesses. They've got what's called an information asymmetry. And a lot of them follow on with, when they're on the board. So they can say, this company's doing real well. I'll follow I'll follow on. They won't even do a public raise for for, for a next round. So uh, venture, I, I find venture capital funds really good to invest in. The downside is it can take seven to 10 years to get your money back. So they're very slow and liquid. So you've got to really be willing to not have that money for upwards of 10 years. So great returns, but highly liquid. Otherwise, you can invest directly in businesses. You've got the same liquidity problem because often startups can take five, seven, 10 years to get a liquidity event. That can be an ASX listing or a sale or a secondary offering. 
the problem with investing in, in individual startups is you just probably can't see enough of them. So I do some angel investing. I might see 50 or 60 businesses a year. That's clearly not enough, but I see more than a lot of investors. So you really want to be seeing probably 100 minimum, but really preferably 200 plus businesses a year. That takes a lot of time. If things take, take, it takes a couple of hours, then you do DD after that. You can be easily spending sort of 20 hours a week on this stuff. So you, you need to be using it as a sort of almost a full-time or a big part-time job. So it's really hard. Plus, there's all you've got to negotiate with founders. You've got to be able to know how to negotiate your shareholders agreement, negotiate your buy-in. So there's a bit of complexity there. Uh, so you've got illiquidity, complexity, uh, long-tail risk. Uh, obviously, startups are highly risky because startups can quite easily run out of money. And I've had a couple of investments run out of money recently. Startup, the founder meant well and just had some bad luck, be it COVID, be it post-COVID, a bunch of reasons. So it's a huge amount of risk. So I, I generally st- tell people to steer clear of investing directly unless you've got lots of time and, and a fair bit of money. I think venture capital firms are a great way to invest, but again, you need to have that, really want to have a, mi- a minimum of a million bucks, I reckon, before you're investing sort of a quarter of a million in a VC firm. But if you do have that, they are a great investment. The ones I mentioned are really good funds. There are plenty others out there. Uh, there's some really smart people in Australian venture and there's some great businesses they're investing in. So, which is really the key driver of return. So I'm, I'm actually quite bullish on VC in Australia. I think it's much more early stage than US, UK, especially US VC. And there's some great opportunities going, coming, coming to uh, LPs and VCs in the next sort of five, 10 years. And that's it for this edition of Ask Adam Anything. Thanks so much for your questions. If you'd like to submit a question, please send a voice recording to info at fromzeropodcast.com. If you're a founder, young professional, or just someone interested in the world of business, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Our producer is Ed Gooden. Our audio producer is Darcy Thompson. And this has been From Zero Podcast with me, Adam Schwab. <laughs>